from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Robert Wilson on November 2, 2015. Robert remembers being introduced to church and God for the first time when he was seven years old by his aunt, who had come to take care of him after his mother died. When he was 12 or 13, he decided to check out the Theosophical Society to learn about other religions. He tells his story about the mysterious visitor who introduced him to the Baha'i faith. Robert is an artist, and you can find his work at rrwilsonart.com. He's also a Wilmette Institute faculty member who facilitates the course on the book Century of Light, which explains the remarkable advancement of humankind toward unity in the 20th century. We discussed the Wilmette Institute in the interview. I started the interview by asking Robert where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Chicago. Chicago, Illinois. I grew up in a suburb, a western suburb of Chicago, Illinois. What was religious life like growing up? Well, my religious life was pretty varied. When I was seven years old, I lost my mother. She uh, died of tuberculosis. I didn't have any religious schooling up until that time. An aunt moved in with us, uh, my mother's sister, to raise me and my younger sister, who's three years younger than I am. I can remember my first experience with religion was when my aunt took me aside and she said, it's time that you go to church. And I had no idea what church was. And I asked her about it, and I was about seven years old at the time. And she said, well, church is where you learn about God. I'd never heard about God either, but I was intrigued. And she said, God is who made everything in the world, everything in the universe. I was so excited going to bed that night because I knew the next morning we would go to church and I would find out all of these mysteries and wondrous ideas. Next morning, sure enough, I got up early, ate my Cheerios. I was all ready to go to church with my aunt. And although my aunt was Catholic and my mother was Catholic, I'd never even heard of church or been in a Catholic church. My father was very... I suppose anti-religion. He was a very successful corporate businessman, and it just didn't fit into his spectrum of life. So I thought I would be going to a church. It would be a magnificent building. I sort of had this dream about it the night before. There would be this huge tower. Inside it would be lined with books, and people with robes would be opening the books, and light would fly out of the books, and consume them with knowledge and wisdom. My aunt took me down the road about a mile and a half to a community Bible church, which was built in a limestone quarry and out of cinder block and concrete blocks with board steps, and it was only a one-story building with hard benches, and uh, it was a lot different than what I had envisioned it. From the first day, I was intrigued by what I was hearing, that the preacher was talking about God, 
I remember not understanding a thing he was saying. But what really captured my attention were the wonderful Bible stories they told in the basement after formal church took place upstairs. I grew up listening to these biblical stories and learning about the Bible. And I thought, what an incredibly amazing book this is. Nowhere in the world are there stories comparable to Samson, to Habakkuk, to Isaiah, to Elijah, to all of these wonderful heroes, to Abraham and all of the trials he underwent. His, I think it was his nephew, Lot, all of these banishments and um, events that were taking place. And I kept thinking to myself, why was God so generous giving people in the far distant past, three, four thousand years ago, such wonderful adventures? And the Bible is really about the good overcoming the evil. And I kept thinking, well, why aren't these people alive now? Where are these people today? Why has God been so silent? And this sent me on a quest when I was a little bit older. When I was about 12 years old, I took my bicycle from Downers Grove, where I was growing up, to Wheaton, Illinois, which was about 15 miles away, to the Theosophical Society, when I had heard they had books on religion other than Christianity. I found nothing wrong with Christianity. It's just that I was so intrigued that if the Bible stories were so wonderful, what were the stories like in other religions? They must be pretty wonderful, too. Quite a few adventures at the Theosophical Society. I wanted to borrow some books. I'm about 12 or 13 years old. I'm not a member. They didn't even know me, but this nice librarian lady let me take a few books home on my promise that I would bring them back. And I brought them back, and I'd ride 15 miles there and 15 miles home on my bicycle about every week or other week to collect a couple more books and bring them back home. And she helped me pick them out. I read books about Buddha. I read books about Native American religions. I read books about, oh, some fantastical type of religious theories and things like that. And it was all very interesting to me. I could never ever convince any of my friends to go with me. I wonder why. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, uh, I was just intrigued by what I was reading. And so when I got to be a little older in my early teenage years, I started sampling the churches of my friends. I went to the Methodist church. It was very pretty, but they didn't talk much about God, I felt at the time. They talked more about who's a member of the tennis club, and when we were going swimming together and things of this nature. And I kind of missed the good old basic fundamentalist Christian stories that I had grown up with when I was younger. Then I went to the Presbyterian Church, and that was a little bit different, but just didn't have room to breathe. I didn't, think, I didn't have room to breathe. It was just a little too formalistic, and the people were nice. And I didn't dislike my little Bible church that I still went to, on a fairly regular basis. And I had one preacher one time, I'll never forget it. This was this little fundamentalist Bible church that I had attended over the years. And I loved to attend. And loved, I knew all the people there, and I knew the Bible stories backwards and forwards and just loved them. And this guy was an ex-Marine who was in a foxhole in Japan. He had his arms were, were just covered with tattoos. He'd roll up his sleeves before he'd give the sermon. And he'd bang the pulpit 
and talk about the war on the devil that we had to fight every day of our lives. And he told the story of how he was in a foxhole in fighting the Japanese, World War II, and a uh, hand grenade or something landed in the foxhole, killed all his good friends. He was the only one to survive unscathed. And so he said he uh, had a new lease on life, and he took a deep inner look at himself. And he said, well, what am I going to do? God has saved me for some reason. He decided he would sell Bibles door to door when he got back to the United States, which he did. And he came across this one house, and the lady said to him, have you ever read what's in the Bible? And better yet, have you ever understood what the Bible's talking about? And here he was selling Bibles, had his life saved in the foxhole, but he never really read the Bible. So he started reading it, and then he went on and became a minister. And But anyways, these stories kind of impressed me, and I was very thrilled by them. Then when I got a little older, I started investing 15 or 16 years old. I uh, studied with uh, Rabbi Levine at the Temple to Hirsch Sinai in Seattle. I'd moved to the West Coast. Attended the Vedanta Society, and the Swamis would come by and give their lectures every at least once a month, we had a major speaker, and these were really enlightening. I learned a tremendous amount from the uh, listening to the Vedanta Society, uh, Swamis speaking, and it brought a unique perspective on knowledge that I'd never thought of before, and a way to integrate spiritual knowledge into your lives, which I'd never heard of before. In my Christian upbringing, it was wonderful stories, but it wasn't really my story. It wasn't really take from this something and use it in your life and become better the way that the Vedanta Society presented. And so this was sort of an eye-opener for me. I never considered myself a seeker at all, but I suppose now in hindsight, that's what I was doing. I was seeking the truth. I wanted to find out what was really, really, really true in the world. This was just a driving force for me. But at the time, I was just curious about why people believed what they believed, why people believed what they believed. And this intrigued me so much. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe in the Trinity? And why do you believe in it in the way that you understand it? Could there be something else? And I, I kept looking at things like this sort of multi-prisms of a gemstone, you might say. Well, uh, we got a little older, went to the University of Washington, and I had a houseboat on Lake Union, which is a really cool place to live, parties a day and night going on down there. And that's where lots of the artists and uh, writers and people lived at the time. And I was coming home from the university for one of my classes. It was a dark, stormy February night. <laughs> And uh, there's, there's this young man lurking around my entrance to my dock. He walked down the stair, he walked to a parking lot and then down the stairs to the dock on the lake and then down the pier to your houseboat. I saw him coming towards me out of the shadows. He was kind of wearing a hood. It wasn't a hood, it was like a parka. But this was back in the early 60s. People didn't usually normally dress this way. And so he says, excuse me, he says, you look like you might be interested in the spiritual life. And I looked up, and I didn't know what to say. Maybe he wanted me to become a monk or something. I don't know. I kept backing up towards my car. He kept approaching, and he, a few feet away, he stopped, and he started very earnestly telling me about the Baha'i faith. And he said he trails around, and he tells people about the coming 
of God's latest messenger. And did you know, he said, that his name is Baha'u'llah, the glory of God? Now, I'd studied a lot of religions, not that I was prideful of knowing a lot of things. I just did it out of curiosity. And I probably didn't go into the depth that a scholar would have in any of these faiths. But I'd never ran across the Baha'i faith. I'd never heard of it. I didn't even know exactly what he was talking about, if it was contemporary or ancient or what it was. And he told me about Baha'u'llah and that he was God's latest messenger. And he said, now I have something very important for you, very, very important. And he reached under his parka, and it was kind of drizzling, and the light was poor. There's only one blinking street light up on the <laughs> corner of the dock, and it was cold, and the water's running down my neck, and uncomfortable. I'd just been out of class. I was hungry, wanted to get in my warm little houseboat and eat. And he says, but there's something I've really got to tell you that's so important. And he took what I turned out to be a prayer book out of his pocket, a book of prayer book, you know, is a, a collection of Baha'i prayers. Many of we say every day, and some of them we just say healing prayers, prayers for forgiveness, prayers for guidance, prayers for detachment, prayers to praise and glorify God. And he showed me the prayer books, and he showed me the subjects in the prayer book. And he says, these will really enrich your life. And he very carefully took his forefinger and thumb and tore out one of the pages. He said, you know, I don't have anything to leave with you. But since you seem to be a little interested, he said, I want to lead, leave with you this page of Baha'i prayer. And he said, now, keep in mind when you read it, he said, keep in mind that this is the word of God for this day. This is very important. And so he pressed this little wet, soggy, now soggy piece of <laughs> printed prayer book paper into my hand, and off he went. And so I went on down to my houseboat. Curiously, I spread the little paper out on the kitchen table. I look at it, and it started in the middle of the page, kind of, and uh, it had words I'd never seen before, like Abdu'l-Baha, Baha'u'llah. It had words like thou and thine. And what really touched my heart in looking back on it and really intrigued me was here was a religion that was contemporary, yet it spoke with such august reverence and high-mindedness about God and addressed him in such lofty and glowing terms. This meant a lot to me because I'd invested some contemporary sects and metaphysical sects and denominations where everybody was really a slap on the back and bringing religion down to the lowest level so everyone could understand it. And that never appealed to me at all. And here was a religion that said it was contemporary. It was a religion of today. And yet it was speaking about God in terms like, thou art the most mighty, the most powerful, the most gracious. And that really, really, those words really touched my heart because they were so lofty. But my friend from the night had gone. I didn't know what to do with the information that he left me. But I thought about this for about a week. And then I looked in the telephone book, and I found the Baha'i faith. And not knowing what to say or what to do, I called them up and said I'd like to become a member. I was told that the a local assembly was meeting uh, in a couple of days, and they invited me down to meet them. Well, I thought this would be a good beginning. So local assembly is the local governing council in a town or a village of the Baha'is. Yes, that's right. 
I had a wonderful meeting with him, and when they realized they knew absolutely nothing about the Baha'i faith, except this one page of prayer that I had, they gave me several important books that meant a lot to me over the years. One was, this was back in 1962, so early 1963, they gave me A Thief in the Night, which is a story of biblical prophecies fulfilled, found in most Baha'i bookstores, um, and I really enjoyed that book, and they gave me Esselman's Baha'u'llah in the New Era, which is kind of a textbook on the Baha'i faith. So if you want to know what the Baha'i faith says about meditation, prayer, use of alcohol, things like this, you can just look them up and it will have um, how to use the Baha'i calendar. All this sort of information is in this little book. They also gave me um, a couple of other books, uh, The Will and Testament of Abdu'l-Baha, which is pretty difficult to read, even as a seasoned Baha'i, <laughs> but it is a tremendously important and wonderful book. Abdu'l-Baha being the son of Baha'u'llah and the headship of the Baha'i faith was transferred to Abdu'l-Baha after Baha'u'llah passed away. That's right. That's right. When Baha'u'llah passed on, he put the reins of the Baha'i faith into the hands of his eldest son, Abdu'l-Baha, which means servant of Baha. At that moment, the covenant was established that would carry the Baha'i faith on into the future. It's a very significant and important part because what Abdu'l-Baha did was to maintain the unity and the oneness of the Baha'i faith, that there's only one faith, and that's the faith of God for this day, the Baha'i faith. And uh, no schisms, no breakaways, things like that. It's just one Baha'i faith on into the future. The will and testament of Abdu'l-Baha is important to Baha'is because it was the continuation of that single faith from Abdu'l-Baha to his grandson, Shoghi Effendi, through that document. Yes, and who carried the faith onward to 1957, and shortly thereafter, and that's when he passed on, uh, the Universal House of Justice was elected. And that's the supreme body of the Baha'i faith today in Haifa, Israel. And that's where it's located. In a sense, our spiritual center. I became a Baha'i that night, so it was about a week and a half after I had heard of the Baha'i faith. And I was just ready to assimilate everything I heard. This made so much sense. All those little pieces that I had heard of all during my life. My life wasn't that long. I was only 21 at the time. But all those little pieces made sense. The uh, fundamentalist Christian teachings of the wonderful Bible stories and the importance of God moving through history and moving in our lives, that made sense. And also all the other religions, the Vedanta, Hindu, that I had studied and, and really enjoyed. There's so much profundity and wisdom in the Baha'i faith. And I realized there's only one religion, and that God has established his faith from the beginning of time by sending us divine teachers, messengers, such as Krishna, Buddha, Zoroaster. Zoroaster was a prophet to the Persians before the time of Muhammad. Abraham and Moses, and of course Jesus and Muhammad, and now today the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So in a sense, there's just one ancient faith of God and various chapters are revealed at the right time in history. And the chapter for today of this ancient faith of God, which will move on into the future, is the Baha'i faith. 
And it makes an instant connection and love for and respect for all of the religions of the past because they all come from God. They were all brought by his manifestations, his teachers, to a very, at one time, very divided humanity. And now we're reaching the age, Baha'u'llah tells us, of the spiritual maturity of the human race. What an exciting time to be living when a whole new world order has been created by Baha'u'llah and the effects of that world order are being seen in the transformation of the world we're in today. So, Robert, let me, let me stop you at that point. Sure. How, how would one witness that transformation? It could be answered several ways, but I would say that first, when, when an individual is spiritually transformed, the society around that individual and all of society is transformed as well. The whole essence of the Baha'i faith, in one sense, is the spiritual transformation of the individual believer. Everyone's going through this process in the world. Everyone who's alive has a soul, a soul yearning for more spiritual knowledge, more spiritual wisdom, a soul that wants to find the meaning of life. What is truth? What is going on in the world? And what is this all about? And another way, of course, is the independent investigation of the truth. This is a fundamental first principle of the Baha'i faith that we have to investigate the truth for ourselves. We can't copy the mistakes others have made and think we're going to find the truth. We can't copy the mistakes previous generations have made and think we are going to find the truth. We have to, in a sense, strike out on our own with a sure and perfect reliance upon God, asking for his guidance, to find what's really true. And it really is a sincere inner search where we investigate for ourselves. We listen to everyone. You listen to the priest, you listen to the rabbi, you listen to your friends. But when it comes down to making a decision, that's up to you. And you don't criticize anyone for their beliefs. You listen to what they say, but then you go on and make your own decision. And I think this principle is so profound and so universal that it can apply to everything we do. It can apply to the policies of the governments, to uh, the uh, problems in the world today. We have to investigate for ourselves and make our own decisions on what's right and what's wrong, on what's true and what's false. And there is a sentence in the Baha'i faith when asked what the truth was, in fact, it's a little sentence in one of the Baha'i prayers where Baha'u'llah tells us that God is truth who knoweth the secret things. So ultimately, beyond just the simple spiritual investigation of the truth, individual investigation, ultimately what we're doing is looking for the purpose of God. What is God in our lives? What is he really all about? What does he want us to do as a person? What does he want me to do as a person? And what us to do as a human race? Yeah. And I think another key, another theme to our spiritual success is our ability to learn. And you think of this, that no other religion I've ever run across encourages its followers to learn. Constant learning is absolutely essential in the Baha'i faith. 
when we talk about learning in the Baha'i faith, what we really do is learning about what Baha'u'llah is saying and what he means. And we do this in several different ways. One way is, and probably the, to me the most important way, is our private, personal, spiritual meditation on the words of Baha'u'llah. You just take a book of Baha'u'llah's, or just a one sentence. Hidden Words is a good example. It's one of Baha'u'llah's little books, which is about the essence of all the revealed religions. You take this little book in a private room, you sit down, and you read a sentence, and you think deep into your hearts, what does this mean? What does this mean to me? And this is, a, I think, an essential way of learning because it opens doors inside of you you never knew that were there. It introduces you to new spiritual concepts you had no idea they ever existed. And this is a constant lifelong process of spiritual transformation, this depth of personal learning by taking the holy words of Baha'u'llah and you take a step deeper into yourself and closer to God. You were talking about learning uh, one thing I wanted to get into was your relationship with the Wilmette Institute. So I was wondering if you could tell folks what is the Wilmette Institute and what's your relationship with it? Uh, the Wilmette Institute is an international institute of learning. It's an online university. People can take courses from wherever background they're from, anywhere in the world, an upcoming course that I'll be mentoring is called the um, Century of Light. This is an example that gives you an idea of what the Wilmette Institute covers. Uh, the Century of Light is about the 20th century, from 1901 to 1999, or 2000, I guess, and the spiritual advancements the world has made in that period of time. The tremendous changes that have taken place in the world and where we are now in human history. When you join the Institute or take a course, you, uh, you do it online. You do it by writing in questions. There are group discussions. You have questions, and, and the mentors can answer the questions, or any of the people taking the course can give their ideas and opinions. We're all using as a basis the same document, in this case, we'll be using the book, The Century of Light, which was published by the Universal House of Justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just discuss where the Baha'i faith is today in relation to other religions, where other religions are today in the relation to the Baha'i faith, and where we all are today as we progress into the future. I emphasize that because the Baha'i faith mm -hmm. is a religion that focuses on the future of the human race. Wilmette Institute has many other courses as well. They study the writings of Baha'u'llah, specific books of Baha'u'llahs, such as Prayers and Meditations, the Gleanings from the Writings of Baha'u'llah, just various books like this, and various Baha'i courses. There's a Baha'i course on marriage, for example, and what a Baha'i marriage is. And people discuss these Baha'i issues and talk about marriage. The Baha'i faith is a very social religion, so many of the topics we talk about have to do with social events confronting us today and the solutions Baha'u'llah brings to many of to these events as well. So, Robert, you're an artist, correct? 
Yes, I am. When did the artist in you manifest itself? Well, um, along with my interest in religion was my world of art. As I was growing up, I always um, associated with artists. I knew many of the uh, famous painters in the Pacific Northwest, including um, a very famous international Baha'i painter, uh, Mark Toby. I uh, met him and admired his work. So I'm wondering if there was a convergence with your awakening at seven years old of the wonder of religion, and how did that converge with what you were using for your medium for art or for your subjects for art? Yes, I think that's a very good question. Of course, I was driven by my search for religion, not formally, but just uh, out of curiosity. I was just always reading things about religion. At the same time, the art was about ideas. It was about the same independent investigation of truth that I would use in religion, I would use in art. I study all of the aspects of aesthetics and line and form and shape, and I keep discovering deeper and deeper and more profound aesthetics in a work of art. I think I was a senior in high school. In fact, I was a senior in high school in January 1960, when one of the guys in my class threw a Time magazine at me and said, hey, you should read this art article in here. And so I looked in this January 11th, that's what it was, 1960 edition of Time magazine, and there was an article about the paintings of Frank Stella, who is still alive and painting in New York. And while looking at his paintings, it just, well, it just shocked me into another dimension of thinking. I realized for the first time by looking at his paintings that art was about idea. It was about the exploration of idea. That sort of set me on my path to think of art as not so much as a pictorial type of possibility, although it can be that too, I suppose, at some levels. But that was, it was really about conveying ideas, and especially it could be used and was, in my interest, spiritual ideas as well. These kind of converged. I felt no dichotomy between the two. I still explore my art, uh, which is... I suppose you could define it as a more minimalistic, very contemporary, postmodern type of painting. But it's about exploring the universe, mm-hmm. about the, you know, the, the pictorial universe. Now, is your art available to the public to see? I've had shows on the East mm-hmm. Coast and in mm-hmm. Chicago, Atlanta, around the country. I've mm-hmm. uh, have exhibitions. Uh, I do have a website online. What's the website? Uh, the website is rr, that's two r's, wilsonart.com. rrwilsonart.com. Yes. And so what will people find on the, on the website? Well, they'll find several series of my I paint in series. I think most artists do, uh, exploring mm-hmm. one kind of idea or another. Mm-hmm. And you'll find an interview uh, on me, a video interview. You'll also find images of my more recent paintings. People are always welcome to use my website to contact me and ask any questions and be happy to respond. I know you're a business writer. Yes. In our earlier conversation today, you had mentioned you're exploring into areas other than business in your writing. Maybe you could tell us what's going on in that area. 
have a other side of my brain is very organized, so I'm very good at numbers and balance sheets and income statements. So I studied accounting as well and eventually put together a, um, a management company called Top Shops International. I wrote several books on executive management, mostly about performance management at all levels of the corporation, from online people uh, to the executive level, and how to measure success and concepts of leadership and management and organization. Uh, both books are still in print, and both books were the first two books written specifically on manufacturing management. This, what are the titles? One is called Top Shops, A Beginner's Guide to Team Building and Shop Management. And the other book is also a Top Shops book, much thicker than and it's about the establishment of a new manufacturing standard. Robert, how would you say the Baha'i principles influenced your work in the area of business management? Oh, most assuredly. Uh, the Baha'i principles are so unific at every level that I integrated them throughout all of management books. For example, the quality of women and men is a Baha'i principle. How can you have good management if you don't have and stand for the equality of women and men? And then you keep breaking that down, and how do you go about it in, in a company? How do you do, do it in this specific company? The house cannot stand without principles like the equality of women and men. The other is the elimination of racism. How can you have a successful corporation if there are racist elements in the corporation that are tearing it apart from within? or recognize the importance of people first as participants. And so we work in, in those categories as well. Another uh, very important concept in business is the idea, and probably the most difficult one I ever had to face, is the concept of consultation. Consultation in the Baha'i faith is the Baha'i problem-solving device. It's the way Baha'is solve problems in their community using the, as the foundation the teachings of the Baha'i faith, Baha'is consult on a specific issue at hand, and everybody tosses in, so to speak, their ideas, and we eventually, as a group, connect the best ideas together for the solution. Unfortunately, in business, where you have a very strict hierarchy in most cases, people don't want to consult. They want the boss wants to do it his way, and other people do it their way, but I'd get them all together anyways, and we'd uh, talk about consultative decision-making, talk about other forms of decision-making as well, and the differences of different types and the outcomes of different types, and show the benefits of the consultative process, which, is, which benefits the most and has the most buy-in from most people to the company. Do you have a work that is in progress that's a little bit different from your business management writings? Yes, I am working on a Baha'i book, one that I feel very deeply uh, could be uh, used by a lot of people, especially people investigating the Baha'i faith. I've submitted it for review, and I just have to upgrade it. I can tell you just very briefly about what it's about. It started out as... Abdu'l-Baha's promise of America's spiritual destiny. Abdu'l-Baha, Baha'u'llah's son, had a tremendous effect on America and the early Baha'is. 
for three major reasons. One was his presence in America. In 1912, Abdu'l-Bahá came to the United States of America after being a prisoner for over 40 years in Iran and in, in Palestine under the Ottoman Empire. And he was freed through the Young Turks Rebellion. And one of the early things that he did in 1912 was to come to the United States for nine months. The Baha'is in the United States absolutely fell in love with him, almost to a person wouldn't attach themselves from him. They really liked him so much. The second thing that he did when he was in America was he wrote so many tablets and gave so many talks all over from Washington, D.C., New York City to Chicago to Los Angeles, where he traveled. And these tablets and these talks that he gave are just exquisite, poignant, and so focused on the spiritual energy that he found in America. And the third thing, and maybe even the most significant of all, was that in the, when Abdu'l-Bahá returned to Palestine, the First World War broke out. And during the tumultuous days of the World War One in Palestine, Palestine was fairly neutral in the war, but the Ottoman Empire sided with the Germans. So warships were up and down the coast, and everyone was fearful. During that terrible time, Abdu'l-Bahá wrote a series of letters to the Baha'is in America called The Tablets of the Divine Plan. And in that book, he speaks about the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, over 116 times he mentions the kingdom of God on earth. He says, O ye heralds of the kingdom of God, he is God, O ye daughters and sons of the kingdom. And then he says, therefore, I direct you to that which is conducive to your heavenly confirmation and illumination in the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God again and again. And in the Bible, if you're familiar with Jesus walking through Galilee, going to the synagogues, Jesus talked incessantly about the kingdom of God. In fact, I counted 67 times in the New Testament where Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. Jesus was proclaiming the future coming of the kingdom of God. And Abdu'l-Bahá came to America and wrote to the Baha'is of America on how to teach the kingdom of God has come. So it fulfills that whole cycle. So I was writing this book. Robert, I have a question. For from someone listening to this interview, and you say that Abdu'l-Bahá encouraged the Baha'is to teach that the kingdom of God has come, how would one who's not oriented toward the Baha'i faith understand what that concept is when he looks around his world or her world and sees the world in the mess that it's in? I think through all of this darkness, there is a bright light shining. I think what a person has to do to understand what Abu Baha is talking about is to learn about Baha'u'llah and see if what he says is true or rings true in their heart. And as soon as they can do that, the next step would be to want to be obedient to what Paola has taught, because the message that Baha'u'llah brings, establishment of the very kingdom that Christ talked about in Matthew when, when Christ talked about the heavenly kingdom, and even in the only prayer that we have by Jesus, the which is referred to as the Lord's Prayer, can be found in Matthew. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
It's a prophecy, in a sense, built right into the prayer. That's what Baha'u'llah, his teachings are the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Baha'u'llah has built, which is so amazing and probably very understood, is he has brought us a complete worldwide administrative order, an order that is big enough, modern enough, and focused enough to include every human being on the face of the earth. The duty of the Baha'is is to put together, to build this kingdom of God. You were living outside the country for some period of time. Yes, when I first became a Baha'i in 1963, it was very different in those days. As far as Baha'i literature in those days, we had very little, uh, very few pieces of literature. But one of the calls to action, every decade or every few decades, we have different calls to action. We call these Baha'i plans in the Baha'i faith, five-year plan, seven-year plan. At that particular time when I first became a Baha'i, the call to action was to become a pioneer. A pioneer means a foreign man would be one who goes to another country, sets up their home in that country, right with the people of that country, and finds a way to support themselves while doing this, because we don't have an established missionary-type system, and live right with the people and teach the Baha'i faith as a member of that society. And I was free at the time to take my son, Rain, and my wife, and we moved to uh, Nicaragua, Central America. And I lived there for about four years. And as I say, without having many documents to share with people, I put together little three-ring binders with pictures and drawings of Baha'i principles and uh, Baha'i prayers. And when I went to the villages of the Mosquito Indians, the Rama Indians, part of the east coast of Nicaragua, the Caribbean coast, I didn't read because they didn't have schools. So what we would do is we would memorize prayers. We would look at the pictures that I drew of Baha'i principles, equality of women and men, elimination of all forms of prejudice, being kind to people of all religions because all religions come from God. These are fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith. And to support myself, I started an oyster business and uh, sold oysters on the Central American market. I had a lot of people working in my oyster <laughs> beds, picking oysters and uh, bottling them. I returned to the United States from four years in Nicaragua, partly because my son was growing up and I wanted to get him into uh, a school here in the United States. It would be easier to return than maintain my livelihood down there. And so I did. I um, still regret it in a way. I made some friends for life down there. I asked Robert what message would he like to convey to the listeners in conclusion to our interview. I'd like to encourage people, if there are artists out there, to uh, pull on some great powers of creativity, such as your imagination, your inspiration, your instinct, and your intuition. I believe that these are five inner powers that can really change a person's life. And you can use them, these powers to discover the world, the imagination, insight, inspiration, instinct, and intuition. 
Robert, thank you so much for sharing your story and your life with us. Well, you're welcome, Warren. It was a real pleasure in getting to know you and talk with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Wilson, a Baha'i and artist who is a Wilmette Institute faculty member. You can find Robert's work on his website, rrwilsonart.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light My arms are useless If they're not holding up the light Oh my Lord, oh my Lord What shall I be? My legs are you When they're not walking on thy path My legs are useless When they're not walking on thy path They serve no purpose When they don't walk the path of peace Oh, my Lord Oh, my Lord What shall I be? My eyes are useless When they can't see the light of God My eyes are blinded When they don't see
with his love. for change but nothing grows from conflict except the things we hate about ourselves no they can't pass a law to end indifference no human rights can break us from our shell cause true freedom is in submission to his commandments and say who needs them but we're all wishing for something more mysterious his lips have disappeared from acting serious And watching all his numbers rise and fall He walks on by me singing in the subway And he plugs his ears, won't listen to me calling out that True freedom is in submission to his commandments We say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more Starboard bow 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.